A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's almost January 6th moment. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Read Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Do you need a good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. And we are back. Welcome back to Tom Reads Your Story, everyone. The number one spoken word podcast in America. So, I'm Tom Zania. Many of you already know that. And if you're here for the first time, I am an actor, a voice actor, mostly now, uh, and I have done some on-camera work as well. I produce this podcast on a weekly basis so far. And I hope that you will join us every week. Uh, If you're here for the first time and don't know what to expect, well, it's kind of a mixed bag. It always has been. And it looks like it might always will be. We, uh, We get into all kinds of things here. I like to read from interesting articles online, uh, sometimes very compelling Facebook posts, things like that. Um, And you are welcome to join us and give your comments. Uh, We have a Facebook page now, uh, a group page. Uh, I haven't gotten any serious contributors to it yet, and I hope that you, after listening, will join us there as well. So, what we have today is something that I found on a website that I think you should all check out. It's called Pocket.com. I think it's somehow attached to the um, Firefox browser. I think that's where I found it somewhere. Maybe like, you know, as you scroll down, that type of thing. It's a very good website. It has lots of good little stories, interesting, offbeat things. And I think you'll find it enlightening, at least, if there there might be some things there that you never even dreamed of. I never knew uh, what we're going to talk about today ever happened. And what we're going to talk about today isn't just 
January 6th. We've just gone through uh, a January 6th anniversary. And I know we've, you know, we've talked about this thing over and over ad infinitum for a long time. And I'm, I'm not bringing it up just for that reason. I'm bringing it up because the story that I found uh, in pocket.com is about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and how his politics affected America to the point that there was almost a January 6th type event against him. And it was pretty solid. I knew nothing about this. And I'm a little embarrassed that I'm not as historically educated as others are. But if you listen to this, you'll learn all about it. Here it is. Why is so little known about the 1930s coup attempt against FDR? Business leaders like J.P. Morgan and Irene DuPont were accused by a retired major general of plotting to install a fascist dictator. Donald Trump's elaborate plot to overthrow the democratically elected president was neither impulsive nor uncoordinated, but straight out of the playbook of another American coup attempt, the 1933 Wall Street Putsch against newly elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt. America had hit rock bottom, beginning with the stock market crash three years earlier. Unemployment was at 16 million and rising. Farm foreclosures exceeded half a million. More than 5,000 banks had failed and hundreds of thousands of families had lost their homes. Financial capitalists had built millions of customers and rigged the market. There were no government safety nets, no unemployment insurance, minimum wage, Social Security, or Medicare. Economic despair gave rise to panic and unrest, and political firebrands and white supremacists eagerly fanned the paranoia of socialism, global conspiracies, and threats from within the country. Populists Huey Long and Father Charles Coughlin attacked FDR, spewing vitriolic anti-Jewish pro-fascist refrains and brandishing the America First slogan coined by media magnate William Randolph Hearst. On March 4, 1933, more than 100,000 people had gathered on the east side of the U.S. Capitol for Roosevelt's inauguration. The atmosphere was slate gray and ominous, the sky suggesting a calm before the storm. That morning, rioting was expected in cities throughout the nation, prompting predictions of a violent revolution. Army machine guns and sharpshooters were placed at strategic locations along the route. Not since the Civil War had Washington been so fortified, with armed police guarding federal buildings. FDR thought government in a civilized society had an obligation to abolish poverty, reduce unemployment, and redistribute wealth. Roosevelt's bold New Deal experiments inflamed the upper class, provoking a backlash from the nation's most powerful bankers, industrialists, and Wall Street brokers, who thought the policy was not only radical, but revolutionary. Worried about losing their personal fortunes to runaway government spending, 
This fertile field of loathing led to the traitor to his class epithet for FDR. What that fellow Roosevelt needs is a 38 caliber revolver right in the back of his head, a respectable citizen said at a Washington dinner party. In a climate of conspiracies and intrigues, and against the backdrop of charismatic dictators in the world such as Hitler and Mussolini, the sparks of anti-Rooseveltism ignited into full-fledged hatred. Many American intellectuals and business leaders saw Nazism and fascism as viable models for the U.S., rise of Hitler and the explosion of the Nazi revolution, which frightened many European nations, struck a chord with prominent American elites and anti-Semites such as Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford. Hitler's elite brown shirts, a mass body of party stormtroopers separate from the 100,000-man German party, was a stark symbol to the powerless American masses. Mussolini's black shirts, the military arm of his organization made up of 200,000 soldiers, were a potent image of strength to a nation that felt emasculated. A divided country and FDR's emboldened, powerful enemies made the plot to overthrow him seem plausible. With restless uncertainty, volatile protests and ominous threats, America's right wing was inspired to form its own paramilitary organizations. Militias sprung up throughout the land, their self-described patriots chanting, this is despotism, this is tyranny. Today's Proud Boys and Oath Keepers have nothing on their extremist forebears. In 1933, a die-hard corps of conservative veterans formed the Khaki Shirts in Philadelphia and recruited pro-Mussolini immigrants. The Silver Shirts was an apocalyptic Christian militia patterned on the notoriously racist Texas Rangers that operated in 46 states and stockpiled weapons. The Gray Shirts of New York, organized to remove communist college professors from the nation's education system, and the Tennessee-based White Shirts wore a crusader cross and agitated for the takeover of Washington. J.P. Morgan Jr., one of the nation's richest men, had secured a $100 million loan to Mussolini's government. He defiantly refused to pay income tax and implored his peers to join him in undermining FDR. So when retired U.S. Marine Corps Major General Smedley Darlington Butler claimed he was recruited by a group of Wall Street financiers to lead a fascist coup against FDR and the U.S. government in the summer of 1933, Washington took him seriously. Butler, a Quaker and First World War hero, dubbed the Maverick Marine, was a soldier's soldier who was idolized by veterans, which represented a huge and powerful voting bloc in America. Famous for his daring exploits in China and Central America, Butler's reputation was impeccable. He got rousing ovations when he claimed that during his 33 years in the Marines, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. Butler later testified before Congress that a bond broker and American Legion member named Gerald McGuire approached him with the plan. McGuire told him the coup was backed by a group called the American Liberty League, 
a group of business leaders which formed in response to FDR's victory, and whose mission it was to teach government the necessity of respect for the rights of persons and property. Members included J.P. Morgan Jr., Irene DuPont, Robert Sterling Clark of the Singer Sewing Machine Fortune, and the chief executives of General Motors, Birdseye, and General Foods. The Putsch called for him to lead a massive army of veterans, funded by $30 million from Wall Street Titans and with weapons supplied by Remington Arms, to march on Washington, oust Roosevelt and the entire line of succession, and established a fascist dictatorship backed by a private army of 500,000 former soldiers. As McGuire laid it out to Butler, the coup was instigated after FDR eliminated the gold standard in April 1933, which threatened the country's wealthiest men, who thought if American currency wasn't backed by gold, rising inflation would diminish their fortunes. He claimed the coup was sponsored by a group who controlled $40 billion in assets, about $800 billion today, and who had $300 million available to support the coup and pay the veterans. The plotters had men, guns, and money, the three elements that make for successful wars and revolutions. Butler referred to them as the royal family of financiers that had controlled the American Legion since its formation in 1919. He felt the Legion was a militaristic political force, notorious for its anti-Semitism and reactionary policies against labor unions and civil rights that manipulated veterans. The planned coup was thwarted when Butler reported it to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, who reported it to FDR. How seriously the Wall Street putsch endangered the Roosevelt presidency remains unknown, with the national press at the time mocking it as a gigantic hoax, and historians like Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr., surmising the gap between contemplation and execution was considerable, and that democracy was not in real danger. Still, there is much evidence that the nation's wealthiest men, Republicans and Democrats alike, were so threatened by FDR's policies that they conspired with anti-government paramilitarism to stage a coup. The final report by the Congressional Committee tasked with investigating the allegations delivered in February 1935 concluded, the committee received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country, adding, there is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. As Congressman John McCormick, who headed the congressional investigation, put it, if Gerald Butler had not been the patriot he was, and if they had been able to maintain secrecy, the plot certainly might very well have succeeded. When times are desperate and people are frustrated, anything could happen. There is still much that is not known about the coup attempt. Butler demanded to know why the names of the country's richest men were removed from the final version of the committee's report. Like most committees, it has slaughtered the little and allowed the big to escape, Butler said in a Philadelphia radio interview in 1935. The big shots weren't even called to testify. 
They were all mentioned in the testimony. Why was all mention of these names suppressed from this testimony? While details of the conspiracy are still matters of historical debate, journalists and historians, including the BBC's Mike Thompson and John Buchanan of the U.S., later concluded that FDR struck a deal with the plotters, allowing them to avoid treason charges and possible execution if Wall Street backed off its opposition to the New Deal. The presidential biographer Sidney Blumenthal recently said that Roosevelt should have pushed it all through, then reneged on his agreement and prosecuted them. What might all of this portend for Americans today? As President Biden follows in FDR's New Deal footsteps, while Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders also rises in popularity and influence, in 1933, rather than inflame a quavering nation, FDR calmly urged Americans to unite to overcome fear, banish apathy, and restore their confidence in the country's future. Now, 90 years later, a year from Trump's own coup attempt, Biden's tone was more alarming sounding a clarion call for Americans to save democracy itself, to make sure such an attack never, never happens again. If the plotters had been held accountable in the 1930s, the forces behind the January 6th coup attempt might never have flourished into the next century. Sally Denton is the author of The Plots Against the President, FDR, A Nation in Crisis, and the rise of the American right. Her forthcoming book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. A good article, I think. History uh, unfolds in a somewhat knowing way. Uh, And... uh, It didn't happen with FDR, but it did happen with uh, Joe Biden. So, um, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today, because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time. Take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.